Good morning. We are delighted that you joined us once again on this Sunday morning for our first session of our Bible study. What we're going to do is follow our same format that we've been following the last few Sundays. We're doing this first Bible study, but as you can see, we're going to do it in a different fashion today. Instead of me just teaching, we're going to have a panel discussion. And so as I do whatever our preliminaries are, they're going to just be sitting here not to blow any air horns or anything of that sort, but rather just to help out in the next few minutes when we get our study going. Then when we wrap this up somewhere between 9.15 to 9.25, then we're going to have a small short break. We'll have some sacred music playing, and then at 10.30, we will begin our live streaming of our morning worship service. And what we've done this week is plan to do the same thing like we've done the last couple of weeks. We're going to have some testimony shared so that if you have some unsaved relatives who want to hear, you want them to hear the gospel, we'll make it very clear again today with some testimonies from some of our own folk, and then we'll hear a brief update from one of our missionaries around the world, and then Pastor Tony does have another children's lesson, and then we're going to be studying. The uh, message is going to be this morning from Mark chapter 15, 16. It's from Rock to Rubble, a message that we've preached in the past, but I think it's very appropriate for this time. But right now, what we want to do is we want to get into a Bible study. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles, head to Mark chapter 15 as we just read a section, but then we're going to be talking at length about some of the different sayings of Jesus Christ. There is um, many times you can go on internet, you can find different sayings or maybe the biographies that you read, like if you're like me, you're reading a number of those and you find out that a number of people have had some really interesting, some humorous, some uh, sad, different final words that they spoke in their last few minutes. Uh, I just have a series of them written down. Harriet Tubman, when she passed away, and we all know her fame from uh, the Underground Railroad and all, her last words were literally, swing low, sweet chariot. Mm -hmm. Ludwig von Beethoven, you, you have music in your background. Do you know what he said? Do you no remember point. what he's famous, what his condition was? He was deaf. He was deaf. His last words were, I'm going to hear in heaven. Hmm. Was positive. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, very modest last words. I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. That's amazing. Um, this one fellow had semi-humorous. He was a, a murderer. He was being executed. And they asked him if he had any final words as he stood before the firing squad in the state of Utah. And he says, could somebody bring me a bulletproof vest? Um, baseball player Mo Berg's last words were this. How did the Mets do today? <laughs> Talk mm. about being interested in things of this nice. world. Mm. Joan Crawford, any of you, this yeah. is predating all of our ages, but famous actress, but known as well as being a kind of a crazy woman. Her last words to her housekeeper who was praying for her as she was passing away, she cussed. I'm not going to repeat her cuss words. Don't you dare ask God to help me. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's uh, Steve Jobs, which most of us, we're familiar with him. His final words, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. Last words can be kind of interesting. Um, I was reading an account just this week of a missionary who said that in the villages that he worked in Africa, the, the peoples of that region would often pray that they would have what they called a, a good death. And that threw him off for a while. He was wondering, what does it mean to have a good death? And it doesn't mean, you know, painless, anything like that. But uh, it doesn't mean dying with dignity. But in that culture, 
having a good death was, could I have family members around me where I can give a final charge to those family members? Do you remember this week we sent out the email about the father in Central Asia who had good death Mm -hmm. talking to his daughter, making sure that since he had come to Christ that she does everything she could to make sure that the gospel be given out via the media. And she was very, very instrumental in that gospel presentation. Well, Jesus Christ is speaking in his final words. He's speaking multiple sentences. And it was a good death. A good death and his statements that he made, they are filled with all kind of charges. Before we explore, why don't you follow along as I read just the passage of Scripture that we'd like to read together just to get started. None of the four Gospels contains all seven sayings. So we're going to bounce around, but just to get the gist and where we've been in the Gospel of Mark, I'm picking up on Mark chapter 15, starting with verse 16. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium. And they called together the whole band, and they clothed him with purple, and plaited a crown of thorns, and put it about his head. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him on the head with a reed, and did spit upon him, and bowing their knees, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. And they compelled one Simon of Cyrenia, who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave to him drink, wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. And when they crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, what every man should take. And it was about the third hour. And they crucified him, and the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, one on his right hand, the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled which said he was numbered with the transgressors. And they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and builded it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking said amongst themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him, they reviled him. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by, when they heard it, said, Behold, he calls Elijah. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice, and he gave up the ghost. Profound situation impacting situation and there's some real positive that comes out of it the positive is the words that jesus spoke and so what we have decided to do is we're going to go through all seven statements but we're going to take turns kind of leading the discussion and tony you volunteered i think you volunteered to get us started your first phrase that you're dealing with uh the phrase i had was luke 23 34 it says father forgive them for they know not what they do uh, and as I was reading and studying, I came up with some observations I'd like to share with you. Just three observations. 
And the first would be this, that we can observe from this phrase that Jesus has a relationship with the Father. There's a display of confidence from Jesus saying, I can approach the Father. Something that he had done before in prayer. Something that we're familiar with, that we know he had referred to him in this way several times. So, so there's that past experience that he's saying, I've done this before, I know I can do it again. And then there's this implied closeness and affection and intimacy based on that term father, Abba, that, that very intimate relationship, father to son, and so, or daddy to child. And so you look and you say, he had this, this idea that I have the right to come to God, and as I do, I have a really close relationship with God. So that's what I first observed, his relationship with the father. And then I continued and I looked and I said, we can observe that there's a role, one of his roles within the Godhead. As Jesus is on the cross, and as he comes and he approaches his father in prayer, I remembered what we talked about two weeks ago. We talked about how Jesus, through his death and resurrection, becomes the one who intercedes on our behalf, the go-between. Almost plays the role of a mediator. And we know that's what he will become. That's what we're told. That's what Hebrews discusses. And yet we see him already beginning to take that role right now. He comes and he says, Father, please forgive them. Uh, The idea of, can you remit their sins? Can you send them away? Can you dismiss? He's asking God to dismiss the sins of those who are acting against him. He's not saying, I forgive them. They haven't asked for it yet. He's saying, God, when these people come to you and they ask to be forgiven, on their behalf, I am asking, please be willing to forgive them. It reminds me of that passage in Isaiah 53, verse 12. It says, he bore the sins of many and makes intercessions for the transgressors. Again, not granting forgiveness, but saying on their behalf, please hear their forgiveness or grant forgiveness because of what I am doing, what I'm about to do. And then I think about his relationship there with the enemies. When he says forgive them, all those who are presently involved, specifically in his death, in what's happening to him. You read then, I think back to the Sermon on the Mount. You mentioned that earlier when we were talking about it today, this morning. Um, But then Luke 6 Chapters 27 through 35. I encourage you to go read it. Luke 6, 27 through 35. Jesus is stressing to the crowd that's listening, you need to love your enemies. You might not want to. Um, that's our message later on today. <laughs> okay, sounds You're good. Good. You're welcome. <laughs> so now we see Shameless Jesus, plug. right? Shameless. We see Jesus in a position where he, he either puts up or shuts up. Like, what is Jesus going to do? You've yeah. said this, now prove that you will do it right. too. And so here he says specifically these people who later we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, we're told that they were kind of unaware of what they were doing. Mm. And he's saying to his father, I want you to forgive these people who are unaware of what they're doing. Instead of responding in um, retaliation, uh-huh. retribution, you know, God, send your wrath. They deserve it. Rescue me from the cross. He's saying, I'm willing to stay here. I'm willing to be on their behalf, their go-between. Please forgive them. And so... He says, I'm just, I, I forgive them, and I'm going to continue this process right now because I love these people. So Jesus responds in love, calling out to his loving father, saying, one day when they ask to be forgiven, please grant them that forgiveness that they deserve because of your choice. Not what they have done, but because of what you choose to do. Um, let's, let's take what you've done and just t- take it a step further. Last Sunday, we talked about that part of what Christ did not only was providing a redemption, which is that's the primary uh, factor behind the entire uh, crucifixion and all. 
But there is also the aspect of what we can walk away with and say as an example to us, as a pattern for us to walk in his steps. From what we just talked about, taking this one saying, what does that say to us? Well, when God... Don't fight over it. Just yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when Jesus said, as Tony was mentioning, to love your enemies, and he even specifically says to pray uh, for those who hurt you, despise you, and so forth. And, uh, and so that's not exactly what he's doing, but he's giving us that very example of how we are to pray and intercede mm-hmm. for those who may have hurt us or those that we would not consider among our friends. Absolutely. Well, I, just lo- I look at the, the difficulty that I would have Somebody spit in my face. Somebody ripped my beard out. Somebody hit me across the face. My, my natural inclination is just, I want to I jack them back and hit them back. And yet, all those people are, are out there. These soldiers, the people are screaming, crucify him, who weeks before are just crying out, Hosanna. Now they're crying out, crucify him. Now they're standing there and he's, Father, forgive them. Just, forgiveness is difficult. And yet, mm-hmm. it's... He, he ex- exemplified the greatest aspect of forgiveness to look at his betrayers and the sins of humanity. I'll take them on myself. I'll take your sins on me, and I'll ask God to forgive you. It's just the example of forgiveness, the consistency. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. Speaking of the people who were there, there was, we think of the torturers, but there was also the other men who were being crucified next to him. Yeah. And Jesus made one statement right to one of those people, and it involved just what we were talking about, uh, and that is that statement to the one thief on the cross. Kim, you want to pick up from there? Sure. So in Luke, still, um, Jesus made the statement to the one uh, criminal being crucified, Verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And I believe it's important to first consider the criminal and his situation uh, and the, change, the remarkable change of heart that takes place uh, during these final moments. Um, it's interesting that not only did the religious leaders uh, who were present mock and insult Jesus, but Matthew makes it clear that initially both of these criminals were mm-hmm. mocking Jesus as well. And, uh, but something caused him to have a change of heart, a change of mind. And uh, I believe there were a number of things. First of all, he heard, certainly heard what the crowd was shouting out. Some were saying, he says that he's the son of God. He says that he came in order to save others. Um, and every time he looked over to Jesus, he had to see the plaque above his head that said, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And then he hears this prayer that Tony just sure. uh, explained so well. Uh, Father, forgive them. And I believe it touched his heart and triggered genuine repentance in him. He was dying. He knew it. And he was not ready to meet God. And so for the first time, Jesus gives him hope that he could be forgiven. He could be saved. And so he makes this public confession. Now, it's interesting because uh, most people struggle to admit how wicked they are. But for this man, all pretense mm-hmm. was gone. Mm-hmm. And uh, yep. he openly acknowledged his sinful condition. He knew he was a lost, guilty sinner. And he also understood Jesus' sinlessness. And uh, he makes the comment, this man has done nothing amiss. Yeah. And the word amiss means yeah. out of place or unbecoming. Mm-hmm. He said, he's done nothing unbecoming. And so he apparently understood what the scripture says, that Christ once suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us back to God. And so the last thing he did then was to call out to Christ and place his trust in him. And we see by his words that not only did he believe that Jesus could save him, but he also believed that Jesus was going to resurrect from the dead and come back to reign as king. And so then we hear this amazing statement by Jesus Christ. 
And not only do we see his concern for lost souls to the very end, but this, this wonderful promise he makes to this dying thief. He says, verily, which means truly, assuredly, uh, we can count as absolute fact what he's about to say. <coughs> verily, I say unto thee, and so Jesus addresses him personally. Jesus wanted him to know, as he wants each of us to know, that we are saved, that our sins have been forgiven. It's not presumption. It's his promise. He says, today, salvation is meant to be a present possession. Mm. We don't need to wait until Christ returns to establish his kingdom, as this criminal apparently Mm -hmm. was expecting. The very same day that we leave this mortal body, as believers, we pass into God's very presence. The Bible says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Uh, The Bible does not teach the concept of soul sleep. And so he says, today, you shall be with me. It's interesting in the Greek, the emphasis is on the words with me, because the greatest aspect of salvation is that we will be with Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just as Jesus had said, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. And he says, you shall be with me in paradise, which is basically a synonym for heaven here, and uh, because that's where Christ is. And uh, so we're not going to be left here on earth. Uh, we're not going to be sent to purgatory. Um, at our death, we will be ushered into Christ's presence in heaven. So this text establishes several profound truths. Amen. Uh, it is proof positive that <clears throat> salvation is available to all, even those who have committed the very worst of sins. Uh, and yet it's only granted to those who believe. And so Schofield made an interesting comment. One criminal was saved so that none needs to despair, but only one so that none may presume. It's also proof positive that all a person can do to be saved and all that we must do to be saved is place our faith in Jesus Christ. Call out to him and ask him uh, to save us from sin and from hell. It's proof positive also that neither baptism nor any ritual Mm -hmm. is needed to go to heaven, simply trusting in Christ. It's proof positive that a person can be saved in the final hours, even moments of their life, which should really encourage us all to not only uh, pray, uh, witness to those who may be on their <coughs> deathbed, but also to not lose despair for uh, uh, lost loved ones sure. who uh, we don't know maybe what happened yep. to them. And the sure. Bible makes it clear that somebody who's very lost can become very saved even in the final moments mm-hmm. of, their, of their life. And so finally, God never promised to always heal us of every illness, never promised to fix all of our problems, but he did promise that whenever a person, anywhere, at any time, trust in Christ, and calls out to him to be saved, he will save them. There's so much there. We, we often run back to this guy for a lot of what you said. Absolutely. No right. baptism, you know, last moments, those are great. Uh, and as you were talking, it just, it, what you had just said before, when you were in a, uh, bringing the two thieves in, just what you said, that, f- that forgiveness was being established, mm. but it wasn't applied until the person responded. Exactly. How they went right together. Yeah. Just that, that illustration right away. Yeah. And as well, isn't this an answer to prayer? He had been Father praying, and if I recall right, it's Father, forgive them repeatedly. That was the one mm. of the seven statements that's repeated multiple times. And it's answered shortly thereafter mm. that this man gets saved. Yeah. Anything else that you guys, when you think about the thief on the cross? Well, I like that. One, they have the choice. There's obviously the decision. The other guy had the same opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And just like everybody, we all have those decisions. Yeah. But something that just struck me was the idea that we, we talk about the thief. We know that there was, but it really never gives the specifics of what his sin, sin was. 
Yeah. And I love, love that because it highlights to us that I can't say, well, my sin's worse than his, so I can't. Mm-hmm. It, it, Christ, Christ's atoning work is, satisfies all sin, any sin I can bring before him. So it's right. not just, just the one, but it's left very, very nebulous there. Yeah. I, just, it, it kind of takes a, a different route, but the idea that even on the cross, Jesus had hope about that prayer that he had in Gethsemane. You know, that we won't completely be separated, Father and I, you know, you and I. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, today you'll be with me in paradise. And you talked about that, yes. how Jesus knew that's where he was going to mm-hmm. end up. And so it's almost like a, I know I have to go through all this. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, mm-hmm. so to speak. It wasn't there mm-hmm. yet. There was still a lot that he had to deal with. But the fact that, again, there's always been a plan. You call, God is willing to forgive. And look, it's, it's going to come to fruition. I, I think by example, if we, if we do the example factor... You have the willingness to forgive, which this man had already reviled him, just like you had already alluded when we started this. Um, I think by example, there's this idea as well, that Jesus is um, comforting somebody in agony by giving him assurances of what the future holds. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we could could develop that whole thought in another. But by example, Jesus is willing to minister to others while he is suffering such mm. great agony, which brings us to one of those groups of people that he is willing to minister to. It includes family. Now, Art, you're going to pick up on the phrase that he speaks to his mother, and this one gets a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. You know, the way it's re- it reads in our, yes, it in our Bible, yeah. woman, okay, mm-hmm. behold your, your son. And Is he being rude? Is he... Being his his patience being stretched, that he's speaking to her in a short fashion. None of us would ever do that when we're in pain and agony. Be short with others. Is that what's happening here? No, it, it's not. It's different for us culturally. The phrase "woman," we we hear it, but for them that was a term. It was a term of endearment. He wasn't being disrespectful. I would find it interesting to think that. Christ would go through his entire 33 years of existence without sin, being completely respectful. And as he's hanging on the cross, bearing the sins of everybody, I'm going to be like, oh, let me become the unspotless lamb and say, woman, and it's done. It's, it's, it was nothing like that. We can't, we have to be careful reading our culture back into, mm, yeah. into we wouldn't walk around and say it that way, but it, it, it would be a term of compassion. In fact, it's a very intimate term. In fact, this whole scenario in John chapter 19. We'll be in John chapter 19, verses 26. It's all a very intimate setting. In fact, I think it's one of the most intimate moments on the cross from a human perspective. You think about what is happening here. Right before it, the context. Jesus has just been stripped of his robe. He's been crucified by these soldiers. And we don't like to think about it, but he's either hanging on the cross naked or in a loincloth at best. And you're, you're looking and saying, he is in utter humiliation. The Romans wanted to shame him. Yeah. And now all of these people around him, the soldiers are gambling, taking, taking his robe as a spoils of war. His, his mom can't even have that memento, memento of something precious that was his. It's all taken. It's all being claimed by everybody else. And he's looking around and he's seeing all those people that we've talked about that are coming against him or jeering against him. And John says in the gospel there that he sees his mother there. And he sees the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. So they're close. They're, they're very close observing the cross and observing what Jesus is going through. 
And Jesus at this point, he looks at his mother and he says, behold your son. He's not looking and saying, behold me. He's, he's using a perspective here where he's looking at John and Mary and he's saying, look, look to John, he's now your son. And to John, he says, behold your mother. And he's using a, a almost a it's, a, it's not a legally binding, but it's a, a phrase that they would use in the ancient Near East to show a, a non-legal adoption where it's, mm-hmm. you, are, you are now family. You are, you are part of us. And he's, he shows that to them. And you have to think about from Mary, what's, what's going through her mind? Jesus is the oldest. It was his responsibility to care for Mary. We don't see anything with Joseph. So we're, we're assuming that by this point, Joseph is dead. He has the responsibility to care for Mary. He has that upon him, and now he's going to be gone. What does he do? As well, take, take into account his brothers at this point, as far as we know, they're not saved. Mm-hmm. They're, they're still rejecting. The last thing we have in the gospel is he's a lunatic. He's, right. he's crazy. So I can't, I can't have my mother being cared for by them. So he goes to the one that he holds dear, his friend, his, his companion, his disciple, John. And he says, take care of my mom. She's only in her 40, late 40s, early 50s by this point. And so there's not a lot of options for a widow at this point to, to be taken care of. So someone has to do it. So Jesus, in his moment of distress, what does he do? He gently looks to his mom and says, here's the one who's going to take care of you. And he looks to his friend and says, take care of my mom. Who's your mom now? You're, you're part, of the, part of the family. And what's interesting is how John writes it in the gospel there. From that hour, from that moment on, from that time, mm-hmm. he takes Mary into his household, into his things. And he, what is his is hers. And she, he's going to take that responsibility to take care of her. I have a quote from a, a writer named William Barclay. And he said something really interesting about this whole dynamic. He said, there's something infinitely moving in the fact that Jesus in the agony of the cross, in the moment when the salvation of the world hung in the balance, thought of the loneliness of his mother in the days when he would be taken away. Jesus never forgot the duties that lay at his hand. And so as I look at all of that going on, a couple things that just popped into my mind. One Jesus, even in the most difficult times, in his most difficult moment, thought of others. Mm. Specifically his Mm. parents, his mom. But he was thinking of the other people, not just himself. He's he's going through torturous times. And he's like, how can I, I need to make sure I can minister to other people and take care of them and, and fulfill my responsibility. He also realized that there's a time in everyone's life where to pass on responsibilities. There may be someone who can take and do something a little bit better, and we pass that on. Jesus does that here. He says, John, I'm not going to be able to do it anymore. And obviously, he's not going to be able to, but he says, take care of my mom. But I like John's response in in this, is that John hears the duty that is passed on to him, what his master has told him. And he says, take this. And John, what does he do? He hears the duty, and he fulfills his duty. And it reminds me of the different things that Christ has passed on to us as believers. And are we fulfilling those duties that he's entrusted to us, to us as his disciple? Whether it's evangelism or prayer or uh, the, the importance of fellowshipping together or ministering to the body, building up things that have been passed on, duties that have been given to us as Christians, as believers. How do we do with, with fulfilling that? So 
just a really intimate passage, not a, not a condescending one, but a real, to me a challenging one. Yeah, not, not disrespectful. Can, no. uh, can we take for just a minute, can we take it from John's perspective? Hmm. How did Jesus minister to John when he said, this is your mother? Anything stands out to you and hmm. what that said to John? The trust. What's that? The trust. Yeah. The, my, my master, my rabbi, the God of the universe, my Lord, trust, trust me to take care of his mom. Yeah. Yeah, I think ministry goes, obviously, like you said, towards his mom. But ministry towards John hmm. in saying, you've got to, here's a job. I'm giving you something important to do. Um, what strikes me as well, to add to it, maybe, maybe I should let you guys add. I have a couple thoughts that are just flowing through my mind. Anything? Just one point that comes to mind is this is really a fulfillment of a prophecy that was made to Mary when she yes. presented Jesus in the temple. And yeah. Simeon said to yes. her, Behold, this child yeah. is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against, yea, a sword shall pierce through your own also, mm-hmm. through your own soul also. And uh, this had to have obviously been the very worst moment in Mary's sure. life. Um, among everything else, with everything she was witnessing, with the heart and the love of a mother yeah. to behold her son and not to be able to do anything to help him. Yeah. And, uh, and that's when Jesus reaches out to her mm. to help her. From, from the John perspective, the thoughts that, that strike me, exemplary for us, is the way Jesus spoke in this whole setting. Yeah. In his pain and in his agony, who do you, uh, I'll put you on the spot, who is it easiest to get harshest towards? When you're not feeling good. My boss. I mean, <laughs> my boss. <laughs> yeah, those, you know. <laughs> yeah, those closest to you. My you know, dad. closest. Dad. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy to do it. But in this moment, his, <laughs> his self-control yeah. Yeah. in his speech, and in that same factor, I think when he's ministering to John, one of the factors of ministering is he doesn't bring up certain things. Hmm. While mm-hmm. he's talking to John... He doesn't remind him of what's just gone on. You know, silence is golden. And for John, Jesus' silence at that moment is absolutely precious. And just the fact that, hey, John, like he's, you know, he's entrusting as we've just been talking about is uh, it speaks volumes to John as well, ministering to his spirit. And I have to ask myself that question is, you know, am I self-controlled when I'm not feeling well? Am I ministering to family and to others? Yeah, I don't know about you folk. It's easier to go to work and do public things when we're not feeling well and to those that we're closest to in the intimate setting to let loose. And Jesus doesn't do that. There's a statement that we want to just embark on, and we're going we're gonna to kind of do this as a group, this one, a little bit more, and that is that most... Um, oft-quoted statement on the cross here in this church that Jesus made. And that is that statement where he, we already read it this morning when we were in Mark chapter 15, where in the uh, text it says, Eloi, lama sabachthani, where it's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And uh, we're all just going to share some thoughts. And I'm going to throw these guys for a loop here for a second. I was reading in one book that talks, and before you start sharing your thoughts, and I uh, and I, we'll start with you, Tony, and let you share, but I hope I don't throw you off. But I found that this author had something very, very interesting to say about this phrase. 
Before we meditate on these words, we must take a moment to make sure that we do not misunderstand the relationship between the Father and the Son. Because we are going to speak about God the, Fa the, God the Son offering a sacrifice to God the Father, we might give the impression that a benevolent son persuaded a reluctant father to do something about the plight of humanity and the reluctant father grudgingly agreed. Not so. The scriptures do say that Christ was stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. And again, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer, Isaiah 53, 4 and 10. But the image of an angry God exacting every ounce of payment from a submissive Christ can at times distort our understanding of the Almighty. If we are not careful, we almost give the impression that the Son is loving, but the Father is cruel and harsh, which we all know is that's not the case. Mm -hmm. Such a notion flounders in the face of God's love. Indeed, the saving work of Christ originated in the very heart of the Father. The best-known verse in the Bible teaches that God so loved the world. Zechariah said that Christ became the tender mercy of our Father. That's uh, Zechariah of the New Testament when he's quoting Luke chapter 1. Salvation comes to us because our Father is a redeeming God who loves us. The Father and the Son took the initiative of redemption together. Christ did not die to make the Father become loving, for he loved us from the foundation of the world. The will of the Father and the will of, of the Son coincided in the perfect self-sacrifice of the loving Christ. If the Father turned away from the Son at the cross, it was because they agreed it must be so to purchase our redemption. It was a horrid necessity. Nor should we misinterpret or misrepresent, excuse me, the Trinity as we approach the sacred cry. When Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We should not think that the Father and the Son became separated in their being or their essence. In other words, when the Father forsook the Son, the Trinity did not cease to exist or divide into becoming just two. There was a break in their fellowship, mm -hmm. not a breach in the fundamental unity of the Father and the Son. Profound words. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay? Now, we'll let our profound panel uh, <laughs> share some of the thoughts. When we think about, my God, my God, what does that, you know, where he cries it? Let's start. You had the first one about Father. Right, and I, I think that, uh, that idea, remembering back to, he says, Father, that intimate relationship that they had, that closeness, all of a sudden it's gone. He's reaching out to God again in this next phrase, and it's, my God, my God. It's no longer Father. So the word that comes to mind when I put that phrase together is the idea of abandonment. Jesus lost his two closest relationships. He lost a relationship with his father. And at this point, he's saying, my God, there's a relationship that's been broken between you and me. In that way, not that, again, not that the Trinity has been dissolved in any way. Factor, right. But that fellowship factor, mm -hmm. it, at a certain point, he experienced complete and total separation of relationship from his father because of the sins of the world. And so that idea of abandonment, that the one person I knew I could rely on, I knew this was coming, I didn't want it to come, but it's here. And I'm not saying, why did you do this? It's just more of a cry of, I didn't want this to happen. So that's kind of what comes to my mind. To add to that, just to give it some Bible factor, facts, um, in John 14 through 18, if I, if I have my facts right, 45 times Father shows up mm -hmm. in, that, in that period of that evening. Only one time, and this is the only time in his life, mm -hmm. 
that he says God in an impersonal way. But that evening of all evenings, 45 times he's calling out Father. And then here it's my God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's absolutely necessary to make a connection here between Christ's words at this point and a prophecy in Psalm 22, mm-hmm. which yep. provides all the background for his statement. Um, because Jesus, by pronouncing these words, is confirming that he was indeed the Messiah, the chosen one, whose hands and feet would have to be pierced, whose bones would have to be put out of joint, that he was the Messiah that had been foretold, not only in Psalm 22, but many other places. And anybody that knew the scriptures could not <clears throat> help but make that connection between what Christ was saying and that, and that prophecy. But that prophecy in Psalm 22 also, <clears throat> also answers his question, why have you forsaken me? Because in Psalm 22, if you read those first verses, when he says, why have you forsaken me, and why are you so far from helping me, the next phrase is, but thou, God, art holy. Mm-hmm. And so Psalm 22 emphasizes the fact that it's because of God's holiness, because mm-hmm. he is holy and separate from sinners. He cannot look upon sin. That uh, at this time when Jesus is bearing the sin of the world, he's become sin uh, for us, he, the Son of God, is experiencing the separation from the Father that, in fact, we deserve, but that he took upon himself as a fulfillment of Psalm 22. Well, if you, if you take Psalm 22 even a little bit further, I mean, it's a beautiful picture of David to Christ because David is surrounded by his enemies. He's feeling overwhelmed. They're coming against him verbally. They're attacking him. And you take that exact same picture. Christ is now his accusers. He talks about the bulls of Bashan are coming against him. They're just... They're, they're all around him. His accusers are there and his enemies. And he comes out with this, this statement, my God, my God, why have you mm. forsaken me? And David in Psalm 22, he expresses his complete trust in God right. in spite of the apparent rejection by God and by the people around him. Mm-hmm. And that highlighting just that dynamic of why, why is he feeling that? The holiness of God. It, it forwards me to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where it talks about he made him who knew no sin Mm -hmm. to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that moment of abandonment, the feeling that everybody around, he's just, he's, he's feeling the weight of our sin. Mm -hmm. Since we're quoting Psalms, I'll get my one in there. Get your Psalm (laughs) quote in. (laughs) Psalm 37, five, David wrote, I have never seen the righteous forsaken, Mm -hmm. but this moment, Hmm. This is the one unique moment in history where yeah. he is. The righteous one is. Because. Me. You and me. Yeah. You and me. Phenomenal statement. Let's continue because it's take a time. Uh, let me pace up a little bit here. In John chapter 19, we read the words that Jesus is going to speak that are now coming towards the latter part of his experience on the cross. Uh, we know that there's an, this experience is several hours long. Uh, he repeated one of the, the opening statements several times. Then he had the personal conversation with the thief. He had the conversation with his mother. Now we're getting towards the latter portion of, of that time. And Jesus will just call out very simply, I thirst. And uh, what I find very interesting is if we were going to talk about Jesus taking a drink, drinking from a cup. There are three possibilities that happen here on this evening. Uh, Earlier in the evening, he has already referred to uh, the cup that God has has 
has put before him, the cup of God's wrath. He mentions it in Matthew chapter 26, where he says, Oh, my father, if it were possible, let this cup pass from me. Uh, he refers to it in John 18, when the soldiers come in and Peter tries to defend and he raises his sword. And Jesus says, Peter, put up your sword. Uh, those basically live, die by the sword. Uh, but he makes the comment, the cup which my father has given me, shall not I drink it. Now those are referring to this whole aspect of his his separation from the Father and what he's experiencing there. And so we have that cup of wrath. We also have another cup offered to Jesus. At the beginning of the resurrection, uh, I'm sorry, the beginning of the crucifixion, according to Matthew chapter 27, verses 33 and 34, as they were putting him up on the cross at the beginning, they offered to him and the others, they offered him a mixture of what it says uh, of vinegar and gall. And uh, literally that gall, or uh, um, as we understand the, uh, the writings of ancient times, it is basic, basically some type of an opiate, some type of a uh, uh, drug that is going to all of a sudden dull, and dull him, his pain, his senses. And this is the one that Jesus refuses. So then he starts experiencing, as the time goes by, the same thing that anybody would experience with exposure, with um, loss of blood, with all the pain he's going through, is he has that thirsting. And so when he cries out, their response is to give him, and again, our King James uh, says, the vinegar, basically it's a bad wine, a sour wine that they're giving him. Something that others typically wouldn't drink, but he's going to drink. And so he is going to get this drink, whatever amount it is, from this soldier at this time. And there are several things that strike me when we talk about it. One, we're going back to what you brought up twice now, I think, if I have my account right, about Jesus fulfilling prophecy mm -hmm. in different facets, where it was prophesied that uh, it says in Psalm 69, they gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. We read in Psalm 22, I am poured out like water and all my bones, my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And so this aspect of fulfilling prophecy, which as soon as we start talking about fulfilling prophecy, we've got to come to the conclusion, who's in control? Mm. Okay, God is in control. This is, this is not something that has gotten carried away. God is absolutely in control. I think there's a great irony in his statement in this factor um, that Jesus has already displayed in, in the Gospels mm. his relationship to water as, as a whole. Mm. He changed water into wine. He calmed the storms. He walks on the water. And he calls himself the living waters. And if any man would drink of me, they'll mm -hmm. never thirst. And so he's portrayed, you know, this master of the universe, the master of water, can make water mm -hmm. do whatever it wants. All of a sudden at this moment... He's thirsty. He, he's thirsty. Right. He needs it. And it's not something he can just, boom, he's choosing not to provide for himself. Mm -hmm. So in this great irony, what it brings us to is we see God in total control, but also we see the other facet, his humanity mm -hmm. fully, fully on display um, in the fact that here he is suffering the way any of us would react physically with some type of an illness the thirst mm -hmm. that, that is needed. And um, the sufferings that he is having, this thirst, somebody made, and just food for thought, interesting, somebody made an analogy of this, that Jesus is hanging on the cross, suffering separation from the Father, and what is his immediate call as far as for some relief? I thirst. 
Luke 16. That's right. The rich man in hell. Mm-hmm. What is in hell, what is his immediate and first call for relief? Drip of water. A dri- sure. drip of water. And so in that facet, we, we, the sufferings are compounded by this very thing. But uh, it leads me to, to that thought that we've all talked about in the last few days, weeks. Jesus being our empathizer, our sympathizer. Mm-hmm. He understands pain. He understands agony. Uh, he understands hurts that we may have. He understands what it's like to go through a physical, painful ordeal or trial. So as you pray to him, give me stamina, give me strength, he understands. He knows he's in the midst of that. But um, um, before you add some thoughts, let me just bring this one last one, and that strikes me from that one phrase, is the submissive character of Jesus Christ. Knowing what Scripture has said about all of that he's going to experience, knowing that Scripture says he's going to physically pain, be separated, have thirst, which was predicted, um, knows that his mother is going to be in great turmoil and in great distress, and yet he is totally submissive. When he could have called the the thousands of angels, his submissive spirit to endure even the physical Mm. calamity and and, uh, pain of this moment because this was the Father's will. This was the plan. And it is easy for you and me to sit here and tell you that we ought, we ought to always have a submissive spirit and yielded when God puts us through a, a situation that is adverse, turmoil, or especially if it causes pain. If it doesn't, you know, if it isn't a challenge for when it causes pain to you and me personally, if it f- strikes somebody close to us, and probably all of us are going to say our immediate family. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was this text that I've shared with you before. It was that Wednesday that I was studying to do this text a few years back that I was just, had just gotten through some of this point about being submissive to the Father's will. Yes, people need to be submissive. Yes, you've got to be, even if it causes great pain and agony, that I got a phone call from our daughter Becky uh, telling us that she had been diagnosed with uh, cancer at that moment. Mm. And boy, did that make this verse mm. in that afternoon mm. come to life. And I was not of that same submissive spirit that Christ had for a couple hours. It took several hours that day just to swallow it, try to absorb what we had heard, and come to a point of saying, yes, Father, even if there's pain, even if there's a physical, mm-hmm. physical danger here, you're, I, I'm, I'm submissive. Uh, that, that was hard. That was hard. And it was this, this two words. That was a big battle, big challenge. Anybody else have more, uh, better thoughts to add to this? One thought that, that comes to mind uh, is that this is the only time in Jesus' earthly ministry mm. that he asked for something for himself. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Never asked for anything for his personal comfort at any Otherwise, time. Otherwise, it was always ministering to others. Always ministering to others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would just say, read John 4 sometime with that ironic statement that yes. the one who is providing for us living water is begging for water or thirst. He's thirsting, physical thirst. And look at all the times thirst comes up in John 4 with the woman at the well. It's just an interesting read later on. Hmm. Um, Let's do another very, very famous, very, very popular phrase. Mm -hmm. Uh, And again, John records it. And it is that one phrase that is the 
I think we're going to say it's a triumphal phrase. Okay. Mm. It is finished. Uh, let me give the background and then these guys can add to it. Um, you have heard, we have stated it dozens of times, the word is tetelestai. It's in the original language written in Greek for, uh, for what Jesus said. It just basically may, means to bring to a finish, to bring to completion, to finish a task that, that's been there, or to, to make the final, you know, the, the final pay, idea that it's paid in full, something's brought to its completion. Um, it's a, you, you have another point you're going to bring up, I, I believe, about some of the nature of it that's very important, but let me just add, it is a perfect verb, yeah. which has the idea that it's done and it is... Continue, Forever. Continue. Uh, it will never have to be added to. Um, so I'm going to throw a couple questions out. And we will just, just, then we can let you banter a little bit more. But um, when you look at the statement, do you think that it is a, it could be something, <sighs> it's done. Uh, a statement of despair, mm. a statement of uh, surrender, I can't take anymore. Is it a statement of relief, mm. a statement of victory? Mm. I've already jumped the gun in what I think it is. Okay. No, I, I think when we look at it, knowing what we know that Jesus did, what he was sent to do, I think it's easy to side on the idea that it's a victory. You know, I, I'm not going to look and say, oh, Jesus was like, oh, good, it's finally done. I didn't want to do this anyway. You know, um, it That'd is That would be the, so contrary to everything that... It, it would, like you had said, you know, if all of a sudden he's the, the blemished lamb at the end saying, woman. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but that idea, it just, it seems like that's the side that I think we probably all fall on yeah. that it's yeah. a victory statement. Yeah. Yeah. Now, let me ask, yeah. let me add to that with a second question, and then we'll go from there. Exactly what is included that he is saying, what's he referring to? What multiple, there's multiple possibilities here. When he says, it's done, I brought it to completion. Is he talking about, I'm wrapping up the suffering facet? I, I think we'd say that's, that's there. He's winding down the cross, if we can use that in a, in a respectful way. Is there spiritual aspects here? As far as like the redemption from sin, that this sacrifice is complete, it is done, it is going to be, accepted it is finished and so the redemption has been paid in full that my sin has been the tone through the blood through the the death of jesus christ and he knows because it's not gonna it's not gonna be a few words longer and it's gonna be done done you know and so it's 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 finishing the job I, all through his life in fact whenever he makes any reference to his ultimate mission it's always centered on this work of redemption and he says for this cause you know, mm-hmm. i have come mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in Matthew, he says, I didn't come to be ministered to, but to minister mm-hmm. and give my life as a ransom. For many. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's impossible to disconnect this, this statement, it is finished, from all those previous mm-hmm. um, expectations where he said, this is why I'm come. This is the singular mm-hmm. focus that I have mm-hmm. uh, in this mission. I have. And with that, with that, um, you know, bringing salvation purchased to completion, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, it, it finished as well. It, it totally put to rest sacrificial system mm-hmm. we're done yeah, we're done right. with that okay right. what about him and satan moment of victory i would think it's one of the moments of victory you know because who i i sometimes when i talk to the kids the yeah. idea that you know jesus died there could there have been a little bit of excitement in satan's heart like this is the end it's done mm-hmm. he's gone and then a few days later satan's like ah oh, man this didn't work out the way i saw it going right 
It's you know, the Genesis so, three. It's the yeah. okay. He 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 bruised, but I'm gonna exactly. I'm gonna crush your head. Three days later, you're getting crushed. Jesus yeah. is referring to this. Okay, just hours before, like he's talking about his mission. Mm-hmm. This is the judgment of this world. Now mm-hmm. shall the prince of this world be cast out. out. Mm-hmm. Paul writes later that he says, having spoiled the principalities, we all understand what that spoiled means. It's the idea of. You know, taking the teeth out of the biting lion, Mm -hmm. Uh, basically, you know, rendered them powerless. Having spoiled the principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Mm. Okay, so uh, we know salvation's purchase is complete. Mm. We know that Satan's become a toothless dragon, and yet he still has potency when we let him, but. There's a victory wrought that way. Well, I love that. To me, I was thinking about it this afternoon and thinking about commencement. I feel really bad for so many of our seniors who, mm-hmm. seniors in high school and sure. college who, you've worked for all of this to, mm-hmm. to this point. Yeah. And now you can have that moment where you say, it's done. Mm-hmm. And throw the hat. And you can throw the hat and yeah. you can walk away. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about it in, in relation to the cross. When Christ says it is finished, I mean, it's not a cap being tossed off, but... It didn't stop. It wasn't like, oh, we came up short. It wasn't enough to really atone for your sins. It is finished. And it's a beautiful commencement. I mean, it is done, but something's coming. The, yeah. the future mm-hmm. is still. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I just really liked that, that illustration I was thinking about. Yeah. Christ, he finished it. Yeah. Paid in full aspect. Paid it. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Um, I took something exemplary that um, we, could, we could develop from that if we wanted to focus a little bit that direction. We should never quit until we are done with what God has given us. Hmm. And that's a factor of just determination. But just rejoicing in the good that God can bring out of something, even if it costs us mm-hmm. some difficulty. But all things working together for good. And you know, finding, finding that facet of, by illustration. Let me do the last one, because uh, yeah. I think our time is almost expired if not Jesus is going to conclude this entire experience with his last statement Father into your hands I commend my spirit thoughts what stands out if anything when Jesus says Father into the hands I commend my spirit Kim you want to start take- uh, I mean clearly this is a this underlines the fact that this, Jesus' death was no accident mm-hmm. yeah. this was a deliberate act mm-hmm. on his part his death had been predetermined by mm-hmm. the Trinitarian God uh, it's referred to numerous times in Scripture. And so what's interesting is this shows how different Christ's death was from everybody else. Mm. We die because we cannot withstand it. We cannot help it. We're sinners. Mm. Christ died because he chose to. Yeah. As even mm-hmm. said, the Father loves me because I lay down my life and I take it up again. Right. So. Yeah, I have the power to lay it down. I wrote with that same, I have the power to lay it down. Yeah, it's total control. Yeah. Anything that strikes you, Art? Um, I like what he says, and I have a feeling I know what he's going to say because he's going to talk about relationships. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I, you were talking earlier about the, the relationship, Father, and then my God, there's that mm-hmm. separation. And what do we come back? We come back full to Father. So there's, there's that intimacy, that relationship, or the fellowship is, mm-hmm. is coming back it's and there. it's restored. Yeah. It's, he's not left. He's, and I think it goes back to what you preached, you were preaching last week on. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when mm-hmm. Jesus is really concerned about, Father, don't, don't, don't forget me, mm-hmm. you know, or the, the idea of the wrath and all those things coming out, and he's, he's trusting in God, and he knows the plan, and he's, he's 
working through that. And I just, I get taken, just hearing all of this, I've been really just, even right now, just really challenged by the, it's hard to take a human look at the cross. Mm-hmm. To look and to say, wow. Look at the examples of all the things Christ did. Mm-hmm. How do I do that? Mm-hmm. It's humbling. Yeah. And I mean, the cross is humbling. It humbled Christ. Yeah. So it's just, it's yeah. a humbling perspective yeah. to look at. Yeah, for sure. Trust factor. Yeah. Oh, just the same thing I was saying. I mean, there's that wraparound that mm-hmm. there's the, the reconciliation and restoration. If it was possible for Jesus, it's possible for us, right? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, when he's saying, look, there's, there's one, from our perspective, the idea that he said, I'm into your hands, I'm giving my spirit. We have one and only one eternal possession. Mm-hmm. You know, and if Jesus is willing to say, God, I'm, I'm giving this over to you to fulfill mm-hmm. what you promised you would do. Again, an example to us. Yeah. The one thing that, that I have that lasts forever who am I going to trust it with? Hmm. Jesus is saying, trust it with God. He'll fulfill what he says he'll do. That's a good point. Amen. And by example, once again, we have Jesus making a statement by fact and example that mm-hmm. we can know eternal destiny. Mm-hmm. We can know. It's not a hope so. And some of us grew up, <coughs> some of you as well, grew up with the idea that you were told you cannot know for sure. Right. Well, Christ makes it very clear by his statements on the cross that he knew where he was headed for, and he is our, what Hebrew says, our forerunner. Mm-hmm. That is the one who goes ahead, the scout ahead of the army or, or in farming, the very first fruits or forerunner, that, that smaller boat that would lead the larger ships into the harbor. And I think it's a beautiful picture of Christ leading us into the direction where we need to go in order to make sure that we are going to be with him and the Father in heaven one day. And he gives us that assurance from the word of God. If you're sitting here and watching us today or some other time in the future, here you sit and you do not know for sure where you're going to spend eternity. The Bible says these things have been written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. And it comes by believing in Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made. Because he suffered, because he was willing to die and give of his life, you and I can know for sure right now, like that thief on the cross, we can know that we have, we possess eternal life so that the moment our life expires, absent from the body is present with the Lord. If you have any doubts about that, please contact us. We'll gladly discuss, share, minister as best we can from the Word of God to help you out to have that confidence. We're going to take a break right now. In a few moments, we're going to get started with our next session of our Bible study that's, again, going, in to, be, going to be in Mark chapter 15.